this I would listen to this to new age music and it's and ambient music in specific Brian Eno because it, it helped me feel better and it made me relax and then I became interested in doing that myself to help other people and so and and that is really you know one of the most remarkable and rewarding things that has come out of these albums that I've that I've written these two albums that I've written uh, is, is the fact that people, and especially with Aquamarine, people have said to me, my goodness, this has really helped me with my grief. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. This podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts or as a video on my YouTube. This week's episode is with the award-winning harpist and composer Kirsten Agresta Copley. Kirsten has had a really diverse career, starting with rigorous classical training as a young child, an illustrious career as an internationally touring solo harpist, and then a contrasting career performing with pop and rap icons such as Beyonce, Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, Alicia Keys, and so many more famous artists, lots of studio work, and as a composer and arranger. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talked about dealing with grief, ways of dealing with stress and anxiety, and many insights from Kirsten's unique path through the music industry, including as an educator and mentor. Before we get into the conversation, I thought it would be a great time to share part of the official I Am Water video, which is one of the tracks from her album, Aquamarine. Very shortly after we recorded this episode, Aquamarine was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best New Age Ambient or Chant Album. Kirsten has shared several tracks from Aquamarine and some of her other projects that are excerpted in this podcast, and if this music draws you in, please click on the link to her website in the show notes, which will take you to all the places to buy and stream her music. Here's a clip from I Am Water from Aquamarine. Kristen, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me as your guest today. I want to congratulate you on your beautiful new album, Aqua Marine. Thank you. I know we'll be able to share some of that music a little bit later in this episode. And it's a very special album in terms of the relationship to your late mother. And Mm -hmm. she sounds like she was a pretty incredible person. So I thought it might be an interesting starting point to start talking about her and your unusual early music education with her. Absolutely, yes. Um, Aquamarine was written as an homage to her as well as our shared love of the ocean. And one of the things that was very um, 
It was very important to both of us in my youth was spending time near blue spaces. And I, I use that term broadly, encompassing lakes, rivers, oceans, any place that uh, has a body of water that has carrying, carrying motion to the water. Um, and, you know, we, I grew up in suburban Michigan in outside of Detroit, and so I grew up in a Great Lakes state. And uh, my mother was actually um, a choral conductor as well as uh, a music educator. And she also had degrees in, uh, in ethnomusicology. So I was introduced to music from a very, very young age. And in fact, started playing the piano when I was 18 months old because she sat me on her lap and uh, taught me to play the, key the keys on a piano um, from that very early age. And that was the very beginning of my musical tutelage, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, and then, you know, one thing that I really love speaking about my mom is that she was a uh, former Miss Michigan. So she was Miss Michigan in 1957, which was uh, a great honor for her in her lifetime. And she dedicated the Mackinac Bridge, which is the bridge that connects the Lower Peninsula and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And that, uh, that became, you know, some place that our family traveled to and, and made sure that we visited often because she had such a history there. Um, but we traveled all over the world. And, and one thing that was very important to us was finding places where we could spend time near, the, near, near water. Mm -hmm. So water ran a very, a very you know, was a stream through our, you know, our existence uh, growing up and, and into my adulthood. Um, and so the conservancy of that was and conservation of the ocean is very important to me as well. Um, and that was something that she was very fiercely protective of. And I feel like this album really was able to honor both of those, both of those things, not only her inspiration and her support of me as a musician, as a growing up, you know, growing up and as a rising, you know, rising musician, uh, to everything that, uh, that, you know, we've just, that I've just spoken about is in terms of our love of the sea. Mm -hmm. Kirsten, I was interested to read that she was an educator and then she paused her career as an educator when you were young to really devote herself mm -hmm. to you in terms of not just your upbringing, but actually your musical education. She was very dedicated to that. She was. Could you speak a little bit to the huge instrument collection you guys had and what that was like Absolutely. as a child? Well, that's, that's actually how I started to play the harp, is that she was very interested in unique uh, and unusual instruments. And so we had a marimba and a ukulele and um, a concertino and lots of, lots of different, um, you know, unique instruments. And she found an ad in the local paper for a troubadour harp, which is more of a folk, um, maybe student version of instrument. And she bought it really for her own interest and the idea that maybe she could learn to play it a little bit because she knew that she was becoming more involved with things, you know, in my in my world as far as, you know, brownies, Girl Scouts, that kind of thing. She thought she could use it in those instances. And then at five, I was five at the time, I sat down behind it and started to tinkle with it and she knew that she needed to find me a real teacher that knew how to play the instrument. So I studied very early on with the principal harpist of the Detroit Symphony and then at about age 11 uh, my parents 
drove me to Bloomington, Indiana, where I studied with Suzanne McDonald, who is now the professor emeritus from Indiana University Bloomington. Uh, and she was my mentor from, from that moment of age 11 until I graduated with my master's degree, because that's where I ended up doing both of my degrees as well. How long a drive is that from Detroit to Bloomington? Seven hours. Okay. Yeah. So we went uh, about every month, every three to four weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was how I really studied for most of, of my upbringing. Um, I took two years off from those trips and instead flew here to New York City, where I studied with Nancy Allen um, at Juilliard. Uh, but that, and, and also at the Aspen Music Festival, but that was just for two years, and the rest of the time was all with, with Miss McDonald. So my parents were very dedicated to taking me to orchestra rehearsals, and my mother was really the one that did all of it. You know, she drove me to Toronto's and you know, to the Youth Symphony, to Livonia Youth Symphony, Michigan Youth Symphony, and all of these competitions and um, you know anything that that I was involved with, she was right there by my side, including performances at Carnegie Hall and and, and you know all around the world. Mm-hmm. So. Now, we're going to be editing in some of your beautiful music to this episode, so maybe this would be a good time to introduce something. One of the tunes I really loved, I'll just check the name, oh yeah, Nyads. Uh-huh. Would that be possible to include some of that? Of course, yes. Yes, that would be great. Do you want to that speak to great. that title or anything about it? Nyads was actually uh, released as a solo um, and ended up on the album because it also had a water theme. And I chose that title because it's uh, it's the uh, the nymphs and the the spirits that preside over rivers mm-hmm. and smaller bodies of water. And that's that's how I decided to name the piece that because it has a little it has a rolling pattern to it and uh, a very light lilting feel Mm -hmm. as well. This is an excerpt from Nyads from Kirsten's album Aquamarine. Now, your husband helped in the production in terms of the uh, what's called outboard music production. The mix, the mixing, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I you know I had to look things up because I wasn't familiar with these <laughs> terms. So maybe you could speak to that and how that's different than. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people are uh, uncertain as to what the soundscaping is behind the songs that I create, and um, the mixing is really what what that encompasses. So um, we call it the special sauce because he, a lot of people assume that it's created with synthesizers or keyboard 
keyboards, so synth pads and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and there are no keyboards and no synths on any of my music. So what he does is a mixture of modern and vintage outboard effects and he creates uh, that that soundscaping that really does complete the you know we're a we're a partnership in that way where my music rests on its own as a solo piece but without that soundscaping is a completely different song mm -hmm. so um even when i when i compose i have an effects pedal and an amplifier next to me at all times because i need to know what the decay is going to be, what a, a potential decay is going to be or a delay is going to be. Um, and I write around that so that I can create space in the music. And so that there's, you know, as classical musicians, we tend to be very, um, I guess, drawn to notey music, right? Um, most of our solo repertoire is quite demanding. And um, the music that I'm writing is new age, so it's meant to be calming, it's meant to be relaxing, and it has to have a, a certain amount of space in order to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. I know you've performed in Carnegie Hall in, in many different um, different musical ensembles, and we can talk about that, but those early performances, sure. were those solo or part of orchestras? Um, the, I, I did three solo recitals at while okay. recital hall, and then um, in 2006, I think, <laughs> I can't think back to exactly the year, but I think it was 2006, it was uh, a concerto soloist in the main hall in Stern okay. Auditorium. I did my master's at Indiana uh, in Bloomington. Oh, you did? And I, I, Amazing. I still feel a little regret. I, I met a harp player once and she, it was one of these passing conversations and she said she absolutely didn't want to play an orchestra, she only wanted to be a soloist. <laughs> I think I answer with some level of incredulity because in my limited view this this was impossible because the only possible option was to be an orchestral harpist because that's all I knew and she just dismissed me and we never I don't think spoke again but since then I've thought oh that was very narrow of me I should have just you know been open to whatever her dreams were you know Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's a standard response uh, is that you expect that uh, the harpist is going to be wanting to do orchestral work. Um, certainly, I love playing in orchestras and I enjoy every opportunity that I have to do that. But that was never my main goal either. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it just it just depends on the career path that that you decide to take once you're out of school. And in fact, when I graduated from from Indiana, uh, many of the main orchestras in the country were opening. And it was a little bit of a domino effect because, you know, each one of them had people retiring and moving moving on in life. And I took all of them and I felt like I never, there were very few of them that I really wanted. And, and it was, it was a, a good learning experience for me to determine that that wasn't really where my focus was. And in fact, I did enjoy being a soloist for a good number of years, but then that also burned me out a lot and I felt like um, you know you you know that I do a lot of, of pop arrangements and I'm also involved in many you know many pop situations um, and and that was something that was always of interest to me to be able to be well-rounded and to also 
say yes to whatever opportunities were thrown my way. And thankfully, I was really, really lucky in, in that respect to be a freelancer and to have things really come to me in many, many different facets. Mm -hmm. What I found really interesting when I was researching your story is that you had kind of a burnout from the harp at a certain point and you went over to the vocal side. Can you speak to that experience? Yes, I, I, uh, when I was in high school, I was very involved with the musicals. Mm -hmm. And so in every, all four years of my life, I was doing musical theater. Um, I love to sing. I was definitely, um, you know, always interested in doing theater. Um, and when I went to college, I felt like I had an opportunity to spend some time diving into that part of my talent base. Um, so I was a vocal major for the first year and a half of um, my undergrad at Indiana. And then my sophomore year, I became a double major. And then my junior year, I dropped voice and became just a heart major. So I did, I did, um, you know, I did spend a lot of time at Indiana singing as well because I was part of a traveling um, show choir called the Singing Hoosiers, which you might know something about since you went to school there. Um, and that was really fun for me because it was a way for me to still be a heart major but actually do something uh, on the side as a vocalist as well. Mm -hmm. How did your mom react to that change? You know, she was very supportive of every decision that I made. And in fact, I don't remember her ever uh, telling me I shouldn't do something. Uh, she wanted me to explore what made me happy. And she was very uh, supportive of that, even if it meant that I was doing something that she probably expected would not be where I ended up, you know? Um, but, but I think she, as a mother, she was very good about making sure that I was learning from my own mistakes or my own choices. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was something that I really felt so happy about and, you know, and feel happy about in retrospect, looking back at my youth is that I was never told that I couldn't do something. Um, I was never told not to do something. It was always just, do you want to do mm -hmm. it? And if you do, then go for it. And how did Suzanne McDonald react? Well, at that point, I had been studying with Nancy mm -hmm. Allen prior to going to college. That was my junior and senior year of high school. Um, and so by the time I got to Bloomington, I, I went to Bloomington uh, with the intention that I knew that I would some sometime go back to my primary okay. instrument. So, so there was a little deep down... <laughs> <laughs> knowledge that, that I wouldn't end up where I started necessarily. Um, and in, in fact, it was very funny because I ran into her in the women's restroom one day and I looked at her and said, Miss McDonald, it's me, Kirsten. And she said, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you not in the harp studio? You know. So uh, that December, actually, I had a private audition uh, with her and her assistant at the time, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so. so how big was the harp to, uh, you know, studio when you were there? Oh, well, Indiana's known as having one of the largest harp departments in the world, mm -hmm. and that was really all due to Suzanne. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the time that I was there, there were probably anywhere between... 
19 and 25 students. I mean, it was it was a very large studio and and of the highest caliber as well. Hi, just a short break from the episode, which I hope you're enjoying so far. If you want to check out over 100 episodes you may have missed, in addition to your podcast player or YouTube, I have an extensive website, leahroseman.com, with show notes, transcripts, the complete catalogue of episodes, and you can sign up there for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks of upcoming guests. Please do share your favourite episodes with your friends, follow me on social media, and share my posts. And if you can spare a few dollars to help support the series, that would be amazing, and you can find that link in the show notes. I'm an independent podcaster, and I really do need the help of my listeners. Now back to the episode. You know, we were just talking before about um, your burnout. I just wanted to circle back to that because I find it very interesting as a classical musician myself who started as a child, you know, and had this very narrow path. And then now on this podcast, I really try to talk to all kinds of musicians from around the world. And I find it interesting talking to people who started maybe as an adult or discovering a music or style of music they didn't even know about and just going for it as opposed to you know, the path I took, which is more similar to what you did. And Mm -hmm. as an, you know, as an educator yourself, do you have any reflections on that? Like the burnout people can experience by doing classical music from a young age? Well, I think because, as you said, I started from a very young age and I was competitive from a young Mm -hmm. age. So at a certain point, I felt, um, I felt like I wanted to be a normal kid and I wanted to do those things. I was a cheerleader, a pom-pom girl in high school. I, I don't, you know, the musicals, like I, I wanted to be involved in things that in, and I guess that included me in a community because as you said, the harp is always by itself. So most of my work, even if I'm in an orchestra, I'm still the only one in my section. And other than that, I play alone most of the time. So uh, it, there's, a, there's an element of isolation that you feel as, as a harpist, I guess, and from that perspective. Um, and I think by the time I got into high school, I was also exploring what else I was good at. And so I was, uh, I was a good writer. I was uh, taking creative writing courses and feeling very confident about my abilities in, in that uh, department. And then for a hot second, I wanted to be an oceanographer until I realized how many biology classes that would require. <laughs> so that was very short-lived. <laughs> But it was just, uh, I think, a, a normal child, you know, a youngster, young woman ch- trying to figure out where I, you know, where I fit in the world and what I really wanted to do. And I think everybody assumed that I would become a harpist. And so there was a little defiance in me that said, well, no, but I'm good at other things, too. <laughs> but, but you know, as, as it went along, it, it became very obvious to me that this really is the, you know, an extension of my soul and um, being behind that instrument is where I belong and, and what I'm meant to do. So, you know, I think as far as, um, you know, I taught at Vanderbilt University for four years uh, in Nashville. And I think one of the things that I was very um, eager to do with the students was to make them well-rounded within the music business Mm -hmm. and that was one thing that I felt was um, strongly lacking in curriculums across the country for for the most part. 
that you know kids are going to school to be soloists, to be orchestral musicians, but they don't have a clue how to market themselves when they get out of school, uh, or what to you know what to what to do when they get to, when they get their degree. So I I took it upon myself to really work with them about playing with beats and playing to you know. Broadway charts and and to conductors videos and what that might look like mm-hmm. in in a real world situation. Um, so you know, I think I think allowing young artists to discover their path is great, but I think there's also a point where, as mentors, we have a responsibility to show them the bigger world that they're about to walk into mm-hmm. when they graduate. Next, you'll be hearing an excerpt from the title track, Aquamarine. I know you grew up in Detroit. So one of my previous guests, Leslie DeShazor, grew up there. And we, I've spoken with her what an important musical city it is. Mm-hmm. And I, it occurs to me you've lived in four really important cities because I'm going to separate Manhattan from Brooklyn, where you now reside. <laughs> <laughs> and also Nashville. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, how about just, you know, we can talk a little more about Detroit and growing up there. You mentioned a few of the opportunities you had as a young musician. Well, you know, I grew up outside of Detroit, so I was in a suburb about 18 miles north. Um, I went to a private school there that had a very strong arts program, and uh, that was wonderful for me because it 
allowed me to be really immersed in the arts in other in other uh, ways outside of my harp world. <laughs> you know, um, I was also playing piano competitively at that time, so. You know, the piano has always been a very important instrument to me. It's it's still a very important instrument to me. I write um, I write music for the piano as well. Um, you know, it's I have I have many loves as far as music are concerned. But the harp and the piano are truly my my two real true loves. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't know you wrote music for piano. Um, I was curious if you wanted to include any of that because I haven't heard any of it. Um, it's it's just I have a I have a moniker that's uh, star, it's called Star Age, and it's actually an anagram of Agresta. Okay. It's it's also you know neoclassical New Age music, um, and it gave me an opportunity. We have a recording studio mm -hmm. here in our in our Brooklyn home, and it, and I have my Steinway that I grew up okay playing here. So it's the first time in my life that I've been able to record on it. And that's been really rewarding. Mm. I haven't been able to do much of it recently because I've been very immersed in all things aquamarine at the moment. But but it's uh, it's always there for me, and it, it it brings me great solace actually to sit behind it and and play in a much different way than the harp does. It it's actually um, it's actually of the place that I go when I need to feel healing or I need to feel some sort of um, release. Mm -hmm. This is an excerpt from Threads, piano music from Star Age, written and performed by Kirsten Agresta Copley. Before we leave the, the topic of Great Music City, so Nashville, what was that experience like? Well, we moved there in 2014, and uh, my husband's publisher was based there at the time. He was doing a lot of songwriting, um, and we decided to take a break from Manhattan. And uh, in that time, it was, it was a very rewarding seven years there. I think the city really treated us very well. I was the top session harpist there. I was playing for a lot of uh, movie soundtracks and films, and films and TV shows and video games and, you know, lots of, lots of the kind of work that, um, that doesn't exist anymore so much in the bigger markets because it's too expensive yeah. in these bigger markets. Um, and of course, then you know, the last four years I was at Vanderbilt, so that was my my primary primary work there. Um, but we, you know, we both played on the CMA Christmas Show on ABC. 
Um, and, you know, there were lots of opportunities that, that came from being there. But in 2021, uh, after the world had shut down and after we realized that we can no longer fly back and forth to New York City yeah. to maintain the jobs that we had here, which we had been doing for most of that mm -hmm. time at that point, five years of that time, um, we looked at each other and said, you know, I think we need to go back. That's where we belong. Mm -hmm. That's where our friends are. It's where our, uh, you know, there's only one Carnegie Hall. There's only one Lincoln Center, and I missed I missed that. I missed being a part of the fabric of the city's, you know, musical life. Mm -hmm. So, did you when you were in Nashville? Did you cross paths with uh, Tracy Silverman? Yes, yes, I played with Tracy many times okay. in diff different different uh, things. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so he was a previous guest of this podcast, and he was oh fantastic saying how people. Um, Imagine Nashville's all about country music, but so many musicians have moved there simply because it's more affordable than New York. Mm -hmm. That is very true. That is very true. And you can have a much better quality of life, I think. You know, we lived in a beautiful house um, south of Nashville in a town called Franklin, <clears throat> and it was uh, it was lovely. It was peaceful. It was quiet. It's all the things that New York isn't. <laughs> Um, but but then you look at you look at what you're what you're missing in in this city where I feel the greatest opportunities of my life have existed, mm -hmm. and where they continue it continues to offer me amazing amazing opportunities. And within so. Brooklyn, I know there's quite a music scene there in terms of I don't know what's it like. Well, we live in Bushwick, which is, of course, a very large, large portion of, uh, of Brooklyn. Um, and we live in a very residential area of it. So it's, it's not the, the hipster zone, if you will. <laughs> but it's, it's where we were able to find a townhouse that really met all of our qualifications, moving from a place where we had a house yeah. and, and where we had a lot more space. Uh, so when we came back, you know, my poor realtor had, had a laundry list of things that we needed, including an outdoor space for our dog that we had adopted in Nashville and, um, you know, and the recording studio primarily. Mm -hmm. And so this place that we ended up with had a 1200 square foot basement that was fully renovated and was perfect to make a recording studio out of. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were able to build a, a first-class, professional, really great uh, space for our projects and other people's projects. Wonderful. Bef before we leave, um, we talked a little bit about Suzanne McDonald. She was such a huge part of your harp education. I wondered mm -hmm. if you just had maybe two or three things, like highlights of her pedagogical approach to teaching that you mm. might want to reflect on. I think one of the biggest things that I learned from her was to have a very supple and warm tone. And that was something that she really was able to, um, to teach well, as well as uh, show as an example in her own playing. And um, she was remarkable in the sense that it, I mean, we'd all be playing different repertoire and yet she could play every single one of the pieces that we were all working on and imagine with a studio of 25 how much how much substantial music that is 
Um, and she would just pull the harp over and play the passage and know it like the back of her hand. And I always thought that was just so incredible that she was able to do that. Um, and she was, she was just very supportive in a, um, in a motherly way with me, at least. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that everyone had that experience with her, but I certainly did. And that came along with some tough love. Mm -hmm. And there would be times when I would leave my lessons and I'd be crying. Um, but I'd be crying because I maybe wasn't prepared the way she expected me to be. Mm -hmm. And she had very high expectations for me. And that was, and that was something that I really took very seriously. So. Mm -hmm. Is there another track from Aquamarine we could use part of? Or? I think the songs that I'd like to include would be the title track, Aquamarine, okay. and Into the Mist, which is the last track. So Into okay. the Mist really speaks to your, your, the loss of your mother and her... Well, Into the Mist was the, the, actually the first piece that I wrote mm -hmm. for this album. And it was, um, it was composed loosely as a hymn and um, the feeling that I was watching my mother slowly disappear into the mist. And so that was, uh, that was really how I started the album, was to, was to start from the end and then go back to the beginning <laughs> and, and write, write the pieces as they felt that they came in the process. You know, So this was over a span of two years, and. It wasn't necessarily um, a dedicated amount of time where I just sat down and wrote the whole album in two weeks. It was more that one song at a time would come to me as things were happening. And they became a grouping and, a, and an album mm -hmm. out of that. This is Into the Mist from the album Aquamarine. <laughs>
it's very beautiful and that you know you spoke about the warm supple sound you really hear that it comes across oh thank you thank you that's something I, I'm very proud of is that I'm able to carry on that legacy of Suzanne's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Now, I'd heard you say in another interview that you got interested in the style of music because to help you deal with anxiety and, and touring and so mm-hmm. on. Do you want to speak to, mm-hmm. to that sort of motivation or interest? Yes. I'm. You know, I think we, especially the world that we live in right now, there's... And, and always there is something that is maybe grating at you or, or dragging you down. And um, I was born under a water sign and also feel that I take on a lot from the outside world. Um, and so this, I would listen to this, to new age music and, it's, and ambient music in specific Brian Eno because it helped me feel better and it made me relax. And then I became interested in doing that myself to help other people. And so, and, and that is really, you know, one of the most remarkable and rewarding things that has come out of these albums that I've, that I've written, these two albums that I've written, uh, is, is the fact that people, and especially with Aquamarine, people have said to me, my goodness, this has really helped me with my grief. Mm. And I didn't even know that I needed to let out that emotion. And I started crying when I heard the such and such track, Mm -hmm. you know, and they choose a track that made them feel something. And that means the world to me, because if my, if my music can reach even one other person and it helps them through something the way it's helped me work through my mother's death, then that's incredible. You know, so yeah, I think we, I think we all need something what, and and it doesn't need to be music, but there needs to be something that we can identify with through meditation or through yoga or, you know, a walk down into the park or a walk on the beach, you know, just anything that connects us with a higher version of ourselves, and that can allow us to create space in our minds to let go of what it is that's potentially harboring within. Mm-hmm. So your mother was ill for quite a bit of time before she passed? My mother was ill for most of my adult life. Um, and, and I mean that in the sense that she didn't die of cancer. She didn't have something that was a, <clears throat> that was a long-term debilitating disease. Um, but she had multiple brain surgeries yeah, she had three brain surgeries. Um, she had a, a major stroke and two aneurysms that burst in her brain. She, and then she had uh, severe scoliosis. Oh and the scoliosis is what ended up being the thing that tore her body mm-hmm. apart. So, you know, and that came along with a lot of complications that, that ended her life. So... It's, uh, you know, it, it, it was not, it was not a surprise for her to disappear in January. Um, and I have been expecting it for a very long time. Uh, but I think in some ways this album came out of the many, many years of dealing with her medical traumas. Yeah. 
and being the person who was always around her trying to help her heal from these traumas, mm-hmm. um, especially you know, down the line when she had her stroke and she, she really didn't have an advocate aside from me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a lifetime <laughs> of, of sadness and, and anxiety from watching somebody you love go through that much pain and agony and um, subsequent, you know, hospice. Yeah. I can relate. My mom had a very long illness for much of my adult life, although she died uh, a number I'm of years sorry. ago. But every situation is, of course, completely different. But I, I understand a little bit where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. You, you'd mentioned travel, and I know that you, you love to travel and you have a, a, some travel stories. Like you went to Tanzania, right? We did. We, we went to Tanzania, actually, in late February of 2020. <laughs> right before. <laughs> So you can see where this is going. (laughs) Um, It had actually been a dream of my husband and mine to go to Africa and uh, especially with our love of nature and animals as well. We always had wanted to do a safari. And so we chose Tanzania based on the fact that we found a travel company that did a wonderful, all-encompassing, I think it was 13-day um, tour through the Serengeti and, and Ngorongoro Crater and all of the all of the places that you really read about and want to go. And we were so fortunate we got to see the Great Migration in like in the middle of it, like on a hill, wow. so that they didn't trample over you. <laughs> but, but it was it was a life changing, extraordinary experience. And on the very last day. The travel company said, you know, stay, stay tuned because we might have to pull in you and send you home a day early if, if we see that they're going to close the borders. Mm-hmm. And we flew home as we had planned to and got home the day before the travel ban went into effect. <laughs> so we were really rolling the dice, but, uh, but we didn't know it at the time, you know, there, it, it, it wasn't something that we would have, you know, not gone on the trip because of at that point mm-hmm. and we're so grateful that we that we made it happen and then in a very surreal moment came home and were sequestered at home for weeks on end after that mm-hmm. so and then months and years and more recently you were at the opening of the sphere <sighs> do you want to speak about that <laughs> um well, what I can say about that is that we were very fortunate to be invited to the opening weekend. And so, um, you know, it, it was something that was very meaningful to us because obviously um, it's, it's an extraordinary venue and one that is single-handedly changing the way we experience live performance because of the multimedia dimension that is, that is associated with it. Um, and we're big fans of you too, so <laughs> you know, it, was, it was a lot of fun to, to be able to be there and experience it, and especially as a VIP with, with the opening weekend, you know, invitations. So, so people listen to this from all around the world, they, they may not know what we're talking about, so maybe you could... Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, The Sphere is uh, a brand new venue in Las Vegas that uh, is basically, when you look at it, looks like a big globe, 
It's, it's a round building um, and it has tens of thousands of LED lights on the outside of it that project different images um, from an eyeball to a wave to a moon to scenes from U2 to other, you know, and pretty much anything and everything that can be turned into an image can be projected on, through these LED lights. Um, and on the inside, it has hundreds, actually thousands, I think, of speakers inside the, I wish I knew all of the actual, <laughs> I should have done my research on this to talk about it, but, but it's, uh, it, it has so, the sound system is so remarkable that um, even each seat has the capability to have sense infused wow. <laughs> into them. Uh, you can feel hot and cold in them. So if you go to see uh, the Darren, Ar Darren Aronofsky, um, I think it's called Postcard from Earth. It's a movie that they, that they did about, you know, that was the first movie to be, to be featured inside the sphere. And the seats really do do everything that I just mentioned. So you go into a winter scene and you feel, you feel chill. And okay. you know, they say supposedly that it, that uh, you can even like infuse chocolate chip cookies <laughs> smell, into, which you know <laughs> I didn't experience, but yeah. I would have liked to have. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but it it was really life changing um, to be able to see the you know the the multimedia really encompasses the entire the entire uh, spectrum all the way around 360 degrees yeah. and all the way up and it can change from being um you know what looks like a silo at the beginning of the show and then towards the end of the show it looks like an outdoor amphitheater and then it has i mean it's just yeah i i can't even i can't even explain how much it can do wow that's that's really great and You've done so many um, diverse and interesting performances over your career. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe I could ask you, for example, uh, you performed with Beyonce at the White House for President Obama. That must have been very memorable. Yes. It's probably one of the greatest experiences of my life, honestly. Um, and I, I, I felt very strongly about that particular time in our <laughs> country's history. Um, so it, it was especially uh, rewarding to be able to meet the former president and Mrs. Obama and to be able to do a receiving line with them and at the time the Mexican president and his wife who were the guests for that year's, it was for the second state dinner mm -hmm. during his administration. And I'd, I'd already played with Beyonce uh, a couple of times before that, but this was definitely the pinnacle of, of time with her and being able to back her up. And I think the official press photo that Pete Souza took that was printed the next day, ironically, was of the harp with me. And it like, you couldn't tell it was me necessarily, yeah. but you, I knew it was me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the harp with her sitting on a stool. Yeah. So, so that was pretty cool. Do you remember any of the songs that she performed that evening? 
I remember we did Irreplace Irreplaceable um, because I remember Sasha and Malia sitting on, on their mother's lap going to the left, to the left, and doing the choreography to it. Uh, we, we played Halo. I remember Halo. Um, gosh. It's been, it was 2010, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure how many of those brain cells are still left. No, no, that's great. I was just curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of uh, playing, like, rap, <laughs> um, to, what was it, 2005? You got invited to do Live 8? Live 8, yeah. That was really the start of all of the pop performances, was getting that invitation to play for Live 8. Um, Live 8, if people don't know, was the 10-year anniversary of Live Aid, which is the the worldwide concerts that uh, Willie Nelson and, and um, you know, some, some artists had put together for Farm Aid. Um, and Live 8 was its counterpart 10 years later t- for the same reasons. Um, and we were really lucky to, to, you know, we played with Kanye West. We're premiering some of his songs, and that was also one of the most incredible experiences because we played on the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum. And the crowds, there were millions of people, and you just looked out at the audience, and it just went as far as you could see. And I had never in my life experienced being on a stage with that many people. Mm-hmm. So it was very memorable, very memorable. So in terms of these different pop scenarios, are the harp arrangements mm-hmm. good enough? Do you have to change things up when you get there? <laughs> um, there's usually a part written out, and I sometimes embellish them <laughs> and add some things in. Um, we played with Jay-Z at Carnegie Hall a number of years ago for, uh, for a benefit concert, and there was a there was a part of the of the track that had a quiver in it that that was probably done on a, on a synth or something. It was just some little quiver thing, and I just started like doing a quiver on the harp the way that we do them, which is hard to explain but can be done. <laughs> and they just freaked out and, and they were like, oh my God, you have to add that in and you have to add that in. So, you know, it, I, I have some creative license, I think, when I play with a lot of these artists, but in general, um, the, the charts are decent. Actually, I didn't ask you this before, but would you be willing to demonstrate any sort of extended techniques on your harp? Well, I can pull it towards you and show you what the quiver yeah. is if that, if, that, if that helps. It's basically just when you pluck a string and go... Yeah. So that's what it is. You just you press it press it between these, these mechanisms here and just, you know, move your thumb, your thumb up and down. Are there other sort of non-traditional techniques you sometimes use in a pop sort of scenario? Um... Not particularly. I think uh, in pop scenarios, you the, the instrument is quite versatile, and that's probably one of the things that most people don't recognize or realize about the harp, but it's, it's designated as a percussion instrument. Mm-hmm. And it does have the capability to rock out a little bit, <laughs> you know, especially when it's amplified. Um, so no, I don't think there's any particular extended techniques that are used in the pop scenario. Uh, it's more just just making sure that uh, what you, what you're playing is is uh, responsive to the music that you're involved with. Mm-hmm. 
So I had one harp player um, before you on this podcast, Destiny Muhammad, who's a jazz harpist mm -hmm. based in uh, San Francisco area. Okay. But I didn't ask her about the mechanics of the harp, which maybe I should because most people don't realize how complicated it is, right? That's quite true. That's quite true. Um, well, without completely, <laughs> I'm not sure how I can do this like properly, but this is the, this is the front side of the harp. Um, you can see that the, there are black strings and red strings. And um, they're set up like the white keys on a piano. So this is middle C, and it goes up in, in sequence with the notes of the scale, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. The reason these are color-coded is only to let you know where you are on the harp, because on the piano you have the luxury of black keys, which help you feel around um, for where you are. Whereas on the harp, if these were all the same color, you'd be lost. <laughs> So, so this is not a training, a training thing. It's on every single harp that the red strings are C's and the black strings are F's. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 47 strings uh, from a low C bass wire up into a very high G here. Mm -hmm. um, and on the bottom of the harp, which is a little harder to show on camera, there are seven pedals. Mm -hmm. And the seven pedals are actually equivalent to the black keys on a piano. They do all of the sharps and the flats. And so when you, there's one for every note of the scale, you know, again, C, D, E, F, G, A, and B, and there's three notches. And so when the heart, when the pedal is in the very top notch, it's in flat. When it's in the middle notch, it's in natural. And when it's in the bottom notch, it's in sharp. And essentially what that does, let's try this note right here. These mechanisms will move, like right now it's, it's as, as loose as the string can be, it's in flat. It moves it an eighth of an inch here to make it natural, and then an eighth of an inch here to make it sharp. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very, um, let's see, the, there are pedal rods, those, those pedals connect to rods that go up the column of the harp, which is the tall part that you see. Um, and then it connects to 2,000 moving mechanisms that are in this curved neck. So everything inside here is mechanisms that are moving all the time. And if they have to be repaired, it has to be opened up. Is that something that, is there maintenance required sometimes? Uh, they have to be what we call regulated every year, especially if you're a professional, because um, they get a lot of wear and tear. Uh, they're like a car, they depreciate. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, um, what will happen is over time, the sounding board will start to raise and pull, which of course contorts the rest of the body mm -hmm. and twists the neck up here. Um, it's it, it's a it's a high maintenance instrument for sure. I mean, the set of strings alone, if you had to replace all of them, is close to seven hundred dollars. Um, you always have to have a full set on hand because you never know which one is going to break. And during the change of seasons, multiple ones will decide to break because the wood loves the humidity, the strings hate it. <laughs> so it's you know it's it's really a a constant uh, upkeep, so to speak. 
So when you've been touring, you often are, you're playing on rental harps. Have you had yes. an experience where it wasn't maintained properly or there were disasters in performance? Yes. <laughs> uh, very rarely. And I will say that I'm very fortunate to have, uh, to have wonderful colleagues all over the world that have allowed me to use their instruments. However, I did play on, uh, on a harp in Peru that was, you know, they didn't have the resources to take care of it. And it was very clearly um, in need of, of a lot. I was playing a concerto solo there. And when I showed up, um, some of the strings were so afraid that I didn't even think they'd make it through the rehearsal, much less the performance. So I had to change a number of the strings prior to the performance. Um, and that's always risky because it takes a while for them to settle. They don't go into, it's not like, you know, a violin or a guitar where you tune it and it pretty much stays in tune once you've put the string on with the harp because they're made of most of them in the in the uh, regions like from the fourth to the second octave are gut so they're pliable and they you have to stretch them to make them you know stay in tune um, so that was a little scary. It worked out to be fine and the performance went well, <laughs> but, but it was definitely, um, probably the, the, the most dilapidated instrument I had ever played on in my life. Mm -hmm. So. It's interesting to me about the gut, because of course with violin, people who play, you know, original instrument style like Baroque will use, um, gut strings, but the rest mm -hmm. of us have play more modern strings that have the properties of gut, but are much more stable. That hasn't happened mm -hmm. in the harp world. Uh, not really. And I think the reason for that is that the gut really do produce that warmer sound. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, um, a lot of people will string their harp for the last two octaves in nylon. But for me, I only do the top octave in nylon because I want to get that warm sound as much as I can. Um, the gut strings don't really make a difference when you're up this high for this last octave, mm -hmm. so it's fine to use nylon on that octave. But for the rest of it, second octave down to the wire strings, it's all gut. Mm -hmm. You mentioned mm -hmm. uh, your experiences as a soloist. I was curious, do you have a couple of pieces that are your preferred pieces to play if you're going to play with orchestra? Oh, with orchestra? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, my signature concerto is one that I've played with many, many orchestras, and that's the Castel Nuovo Tedesco Concertino for Harp and, and Chamber Orchestra. Uh, it can be done with full orchestra mm -hmm. as well. And I've played that, my goodness, all over in many, many places. So that's, that's the one I love to play. Okay. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the one that, uh, that I'm usually called to play as well. So uh, speaking of composition, so you had your first mm -hmm. album, Around the Sun. So that was kind of your first foray into writing this ambient New Age music? It was. I had released a classical album back in 2001, um, and that was primarily just because I felt like I needed to do a record and do an album of something. And I, But even then, I chose pieces that were more lullabies and uh, classical pieces that were meant for stress relief and relaxation. So I think even back then, I knew that I wanted music that I was recording to be in that genre, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and when I started composing my own 
music in 2019, it became, um, it became just, you know, a, a goal of mine to be able to do a full album and Around the Sun was, was the first album in 2020, in January of 2020, that, uh, that I released of my own work. And you have another album of rock and pop covers that you've put out? Yes, it's just it's called the covers album, and it's basically uh, some some of my favorite favorite songs that that I've arranged for the harp, and I do sell most of my pop arrangements on uh, Sheet Music Plus, and so people can find my arrangements for harp there. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it was funny when I went into YouTube, I found all these other people playing your arrangements when I looked at your name. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> is there one of those that we could share that that you think is really fun? Uh, I think the one that that gets the most streams is uh, Radiohead Creep. Okay. This final musical selection is an excerpt from Kirsten's arrangement of Radiohead's Creep. So did you listen to a lot of Radiohead or was that like a tune you just loved? No, you know, I think it's just, it's just, it's what, what lays on the harp well. Um, if I, I mean, there are, there are pieces, trust me, that people have asked for what, even for weddings mm -hmm. where I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really work. <laughs> you know, um, but a lot of it can be modified and a lot of, as, as long as there's a solid melody mm -hmm. to a piece, then it's it's possible to do an arrangement. It's when you have a lot of this like same note melody or you know repetitive melodies that become a little challenging. Okay. You know, um, which means that modern pop sometimes doesn't really apply too well. But at the same time, um, I figured out techniques of being able to you know use octave like instead of playing a C over and over, I'll do like a back and forth with an octave situation when I'm arranging. Um, and yes, the, the pieces that I choose to arrange are pieces that I like to listen to because they're, if I'm playing them, it's because I like listening to them. <laughs> you know? So.
there's a there's a wide range. Yeah, I was wondering, have you done any Renaissance music, like lute music, on the harp? No. Well, yes, probably as transcriptions back in Indiana. Okay, but not more recently, because it seems no. there's a treasure trove there. I bet there is. I bet there is. I interviewed a wonderful lute, lutenist, uh, Elizabeth Pallet, for this podcast, and she was saying there's Great. just so much of this music that no one's recorded yet. You know, it's all in tablature, ah. though, right? So you have to be able to... That would be complicated as a harpist. That's a learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe somewhere down the line, I'll be, I'll be ready to take that on. <laughs> we were talking earlier about mentoring younger generation and that they need to learn certain kind of business skills and, and to be more broad in their thinking in terms of their identity as musicians. What kind of, you mentioned some of the um, advice you gave people in terms of your harp students, like learning different skills as harpists, but mm -hmm. in terms of other aspects, you know, social media or just the way you present yourself, do you have other advice you give young musicians? I think networking yeah. and, and, you know, one thing that even from my own life, I, I've uh, been able to draw on is to never burn a bridge. Uh, you never know when you're going to run across that same person down the line in a totally different place mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so um, I think the networking is and making sure that you're always open to new opportunities. Um, don't say no to things, especially when you're first coming out of school. I think it's really important to say yes, because you never know who you're going to meet in any given situation. And the more that you meet people, the more that there's potential recommendations for other work, uh, not to mention potential collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, I think I wish that I had started the composing earlier because it has introduced me to so many new people and introduced me to in, in this current, uh, time, Grammy, other Recording Academy people. Um, and I've developed amazing friendships with, with some of these artists and have potential future collaborations with some of these artists. So, you know, I think, I think that's one of the major things that, that I would encourage young people to recognize is yeah, networking. making sure you yeah networking, making sure you know people and and meet people. Kirsten, I, just to close this out, maybe you could reflect on just young Kirsten. You know, as a as a thirteen year old looking back on your your early life as a harpist, what what she would have thought of your career now? Oh my goodness, uh, I don't think my thirteen year old self could have ever imagined the different paths that my career has taken and how many diverse experiences I've been offered. And I think, um, I think that 13 year old would be in awe of, of what I've been able to do as an adult. Um, you know, I, I'm very grateful that I've been able to balance my, my professional life between the classical and the modern pop um, because I love them both. And I think, I think it's, it's been an amazing, amazing journey to see which paths I've walked down and taken. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. There's just one thing that occurred to me that I didn't ask you that I was curious about mm. in terms of performance nerves. Have you had, mm. because often, you know, you mentioned performing for so many 
people, these huge crowds, or maybe you're playing mm-hmm. by ear without charts. Are there experiences that have been more nerve-wracking? That actually doesn't make me nervous at all. In fact, I've always said that I prefer to play for thousands of people than for three people. <laughs> so uh, that's, you know, I, I did have a lot of, of stage nerves when I was doing solo recitals. Um, part of the reason that I stopped doing that was primarily because the reward was not was not enough for me to do all of that preparation and to feel that anxiety before walking on a stage. I've never been able to really, um, to really teach how to get over stage nerves with the exception of teaching memorization skills, uh, which I think are extremely important to alleviate nerves. Which isn't to say that I didn't feel prepared when I was playing. It was, um, I think it was more that I hadn't developed a sense of self uh, assurance in life in general to be able to walk on stage by myself and sit behind my instrument and play. And I did do it and I was very successful at it, but I didn't necessarily enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was uh, that was a learning experience for me to move on from, from doing that and find other ways of soloing in other you know paths. Super interesting. Well, thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's such a fascinating variety to life and music. And this series features wonderful musicians worldwide with in-depth conversations and great music with over 100 episodes to explore. Many episodes feature guests playing music spontaneously as part of the episode or sharing performances and albums. I hope that the inspiration and connection found in a meaningful creative life, the challenges faced, and the stories from such a diversity of artists will draw you into this weekly series with many topics that will resonate with all listeners. Please share your favorite episodes with your friends and do consider supporting this independent podcast. The link is in the description. Have a great week.